This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a great show for you, as always, today. We're going to be talking about a few headlines in the news that concern gold, both lost and found. We are going to be talking about a number of popular and famous U.S. commemoratives that relate in some way to the town of Chicago as a nod to the ANA convention this week. And we have an interview with Roy Bowes, an expert on a relatively obscure area of American military exonumia from the Vietnam War. But first, I want to remind you that if you have found this podcast entertaining and informative, please follow us in whatever podcast platform you choose. We would be lost without you listeners. So now let's talk about gold that was lost, or in this case, stolen. There are major media reports I have confirmed with a source that the Mexico City Mint, it's actually a sales office. Somebody, or in this case, we believe three robbers, went in there and stole $2.5 million U.S. in gold coins. These are the one-ounce gold Libertad coins. They are... About $1,600 U.S. a piece. There's almost 1,600 of them that were stolen back on Tuesday, August 6th. And, of course, the circumstances surrounding this theft are very suspicious. There, Lots of folks are speculating that this was an inside job. There had to have been some knowledge that helped the robbers gain access. They were able to disarm the guard or guards, depending on what news service you're hearing, and in 10 minutes, get out with a huge amount of gold. So if somebody offers you, I'm, I'm speculating, this is sheer speculation, that since the 2019, 2019 Libertads are not out, it's possible that those were part of this heist. Otherwise, they're 2018 Libertads. We don't know. Nobody from the Bank of Mexico or the Casa de Moneda de Mexico there in Mexico City would confirm anything for me. But maybe, maybe we will find out eventually that these are dated 2019. And if they ever show up in the marketplace, but are they really gonna? Because and they might just melt them down. They would be melted. However, that, that doesn't mean that other 2019 coins wouldn't be well, still issued. I mean, I, there will th- be an interesting story to go along with yes. the 2019 Libertads. And one way or the other, and, and Coin World, of course, will keep in touch with it and share that with you. It almost this whole story almost feels like something out of a Western movie. Couldn't you see like the you know the great bank heist to Mexico City or something from well, one of those old ab- absolutely 1800s and, or something? And you know there there's a an analog in Great Britain, the Great Train Robbery. Mm -hmm. And there have been these stories of great heist over the years. Now, to most of us, you know, both Chris and I and most of you listening, $2.5 million is a lot of money. Yep. A lot of money. However, in the scheme of things, it's, you know, that's... Not a huge amount. Not a huge amount of money. It's not as though they made off billions or anything. No, no. Even hundreds of millions. Q Austin Powers, (laughs) one million dollars. No. Exactly. It's it's a lot of money, obviously, but in the scheme of things, 1,600, less than 1,600 coins, one ounce coins. So there's, the mintages are much higher. It's a drop in the bucket in some respects. However... I would, if somebody offered me two and a half million dollars. I mean, I imagine it's more concerning to the Mexican authorities and to, you know, people the world over. I imagine it's concerning more for the flaws that it points out in in potential security systems and stuff like that than it is for the actual monetary loss. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, yes, I understand that there are always parts of the world that are unsafe. Bribery has been an issue in Mexican government for some time. It's possible that that's part of this, that there, you know, somebody was paid off. We don't know the facts, though, and so at this point, yeah, it is sheer speculation. Anything beyond we do know 
1,567 of these coins were right. stolen, absconded, and now, you know, we'll continue to see the aftermath. But that was gold lost in a sense. Chris is going to talk about gold that was found in a different part of the world than Mexico. A contrast to the, the bad luck or the ill fortune of the Mexico City Mint with the good luck of an Australian pensioner who about a week ago, two weeks ago-ish now, in the last couple of weeks, found a 4.4-pound gold nugget in the gold fields of Victoria in southern Australia uh, near the town of Ballarat. A hitherto unidentified prospector who was, you know, by all accounts not a professional by any means, uh, a pensioner actually, we don't know too much more about him. You mean a retiree a re- for, for American a, listeners. I, yes, a retiree in American context, a pensioner, as they might call him in Australia. And the UK. And the UK and, and yeah. Commonwealth nations, probably. Probably, yeah. He was just sort of for fun, just, you know, uh, metal detecting and sort of panning and, you know, very interested in trying to find gold and in gold prospecting in his free time. He happened upon a 4.4 pound nugget, a huge amount of gold valued currently up to 150,000 and 200,000 U.S., And he named this nugget, appropriately enough, You Won't Believe It. And according to Ballarat Gold, a major company that processes gold in that region of Australia, when they spoke to him about the nugget, it's unclear whether or not he has sold it yet. But when they talked to him about the nugget, he was apparently shaking with emotion and joy. So he was I could imagine. Yeah, that's, that's quite a windfall. So it's obviously nowhere near the biggest gold nugget to come out of the Victorian gold fields or elsewhere in the world. But it's still a really significant find that made... A number of headlines in Australia, and even some international news source ran a story on it. I think a couple of places did. Yeah. So it's a story that has definitely caught some people's eyes. And for him, he certainly got lucky. This man, whoever he is, is very grateful and happy uh, for his find, for his good luck. So Absolutely. So I just wonder, though, about this gold nugget. How much gold is in there? You know, gold can come in all sorts of purity levels. Let's explore what that means for our term of the week. All right, our term of the week. So the concept of purity is something that has been bandied about in all kinds of really problematic political contexts. But in the context of metals, purity refers to the amount of a precious metal, gold, silver, platinum, palladium, etc., that exists in a certain unit of weight. The idea being, you know, if in the case of a, a U.S. silver coin, for example, a pre-1964 U.S. circulating coin is 90% silver and 10% copper. So it's 90% pure. Now, the term that people in the numismatic, probably metallurgical and jewelry businesses, I imagine, probably all use, is fineness. Now, the term fineness, you can essentially think of... I thought that of, referred to me and, and how fine uh, I oh, am. Oh, Jeff, you are fine, my friend. Don't, don't, don't you doubt that for a second, but we're talking about <laughs> coins here. Um... And it also applies to copper and other things. It's not yeah, just it, a precious it does, metal, but, it, but it's, it, it doesn't strictly. You don't refer- hear it as much. Exactly. It? Yeah. So, exactly. All we, right. Fineness. Back to you. Generally speaking, as you pointed out, it refers to precious metals, though it can refer to other things. So fineness refers to purity. So if a coin is ninety percent silver and ten percent copper, the example I just cited, it is said to be nine hundred fine, ninety percent pure. So point nine zero zero fine. So because it's measured in thousandths usually. Yeah. And these terms and and certain levels of fineness, particularly in terms of silver, actually have their own names. Sterling silver is Absolutely. is ninety two point five percent fine silver. So of a given weight, if you had a pound of silver, let's say to use the English measurements, if you had a pound of silver, and if ninety two point five percent of that pound was silver, that would be a a pound of sterling silver. Now, that could be alloyed with copper or some other base metal that is not a precious metal, but that is said to be sterling silver, 0.925 fine, or its fineness is 0.925, is is how that would be expressed in numismatic terms. Yeah, a simple way to view this is divide that pile up into a thousand pieces. 925 are going to be silver. The rest is other stuff. Exactly. You, You mentioned sterling silver. There's also Britannia silver, which yep. is 958 fine. And, and well, coin silver, or what's referred to in the United States as coin silver, which is 90% fine. Or you have, are there any other? Because I know silver fineness in coins and metals and tokens and things varies massively. I mean, there are 10%, they're, speaking of Mexico, there are 10% silver pesos from there. There oh, yeah. are 20%, 20% 30% coins. different. Yeah, I all mean, sorts 60, of. There's 64% silver coins. I mean, what a weird. 
what yeah. a weird number to pick out. I mean, that's yeah. it's that's bizarre. But anyway, the point being, fineness denotes the amount of a precious metal in a coin of a certain weight. And it's important when you're thinking about bullion because most modern bullion coin is three nines or four nines fine. However, that hasn't always been the case. Mm -hmm. The Britannia until recent years was struck of Britannia silver. Three, four years ago, the, the Royal Mint changed that to three nines fine because it's they want to be more competitive, especially in the Asian market. And that was one way to do it. So that's your look at yep. fine. So that – yeah, so so if, if we ever uh, are talking on the podcast or if you're out in the world of numismatics and you happen upon a, a certain number, you know, 0.925 fine or 0.800 fine, or someone talks about the, the fineness of a silver or gold or platinum or palladium coin, you will now know what they're talking about. All right. So now that we have shared some knowledge, I want to test your knowledge. Sounds good. So we're right. the trivia this week, this is from the Coin World Trivia Game. This is, along with the commemorative coins that we're going to refer to later, this is a commemorative coin question. And I know that's a favorite series of yours or a favorite area of yours. I absolutely, I am a big fan of the classic U.S. commemoratives. This is a novice level question. All right, so I should be able to get it. You should be able to get it. Who appears on the obverse of the Cleveland Great Lakes Exposition Commemorative Half Dollar. So there is a coin issued from Cleveland, Ohio, Great Lakes Exposition. It's a commemorative half dollar. Who appears on that coin? All right. I, so, will, I will ponder that. I'll, I will plumb the depths of my U.S. commemorative coin knowledge, and we will see, uh, we'll see what sludge comes out. All right. Yeah. Later on, we'll have the answer at home. You you think consider what you may have been exposed to in your coin show haunts or reading of coin books, that sort of thing. Yes, indeed. So now, speaking of commemoratives, we are jumping over to our series of the week where we have kind of a four part segment. We have a correction followed up by a threefer. We're going to be telling you about three fairly closely related U.S. commemorative coins. But right here at the top. We, that is to say I, need to cop to the fact that we made something of an error last week talking about Canadian death dollars. Now, the political history of 19th century Canada, which I am much better acquainted with now than I was last week by dint of having been informed about this, is pretty murky. And the status of Canada relative to the United Kingdom and its position within the British Commonwealth has actually been a long contested and fairly murky issue. But we are here to set the record straight this week. So what we initially said erroneously was that the 1958 death dollar was created to celebrate Canada's independence from Great Britain. That's actually not in any sense true. It was, the coin was minted in 1958, but 1958 did not represent the centennial of Canada's independence. It represented the centennial of the integration of British Columbia, what is today British Columbia, into the United Kingdom, into the British Empire. And so that happened in 1858, after a couple of centuries of Europeans and the descendants of Europeans colonizing different parts of Canada, and generally the French controlling it, British Columbia, or what is today British Columbia, came into the control of the British in 1794, and it was basically a protected area, but it was not designated a colony until 1858, when it was brought into the fold. Now, Canada would not become functionally independent until 1867 with the Canadian Confederation, and British Columbia itself would not be integrated into the Canadian Confederation until 1871. Now, this does beg an interesting question. When did Canada actually become independent? It became legislatively independent, where what is today the UK, Britain could not impose any rules on it, in 1931. They gained full legislative independence in 1931, but they actually did not fully sever ties. They are still a member of the Commonwealth, but they did not fully sever every single symbolic imperial tie until 1982. So full-blown Canadian independence in the sort of purest sense actually did not occur until the early 1980s. So to make our clarification clear, the death dollar was not commemorating the centennial of Canada's independence. It was commemorating the addition of British Columbia into the British Empire, which occurred in 1858. Thank you for clarifying that. We do not want to share incorrect information and work hard not to. And we'll always correct the record as yep. soon as possible if that does happen again. If, if, if you hear us goof up, if, if you hear us get a, get a fact or a date or any, uh, 
anything wrong factually, please feel absolutely free to reach out to us. We yes. we like to hear that. Now, so now to our series of the week in for which, this week for this week for which you guys are you you guys gals and those who lieth betwixt are lucky enough to get a threefer this week. So we're talking about three different commemorative coins that are very closely related. So as a lot of us know, those of us who are very invested in the coin community and and who who participate in a lot of coin shows, the ANA, the American Numismatic Association's big show, it's called the World's Fair of Money. It's the biggest coin show in America. And it's occurring this Give or take. You know, the fun show is pretty dang yeah, big. The fun show is very big, but it is. And I've never been there, so I can't. It is among the largest coin shows in the nation and the world. And it is occurring this week in Rosemont, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. It's just a little bit west of downtown Chicago. Right by the airport. Yeah. So. Yes, right by, right by O'Hare, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I should clarify. There are two, two main airports right. in Chicago. Right, right by O'Hare. So. Chicago has hosted the ANA convention a number of times. Rosemont. A bunch of times. A bunch of times. <laughs> so we thought it would be interesting to look at Chicago's role in American commemorative coins. Absolutely. And it actually, Chicago has a pretty, in, in the greater Chicago area. And Illinois. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Dude, Illinois is killing it commemorative wise. They have so many. And the first, they also have a fairly unique distinction of being the first location to have a commemorative coin, in a sense. And, and and they also have the distinction of having the very first ever U.S. commemorative coin. So, Chicago was designated as the spot for the 1892-93 World's Fair, which was designed to be the World's Columbian Exhibition. The idea being that on the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus discovering the continent of North America... Quote-unquote. Well, the Vikings had been there before. Lots of Lots yeah. of debate, but... The belief at the His time, travel there. The belief at the time was that Columbus's travel and quote-unquote discovery of the New World should be commemorated in the 400th anniversary of the World's Fair. And Chicago was picked to be the location. So the U.S. Mint, contracting with officials at the fair, created two different commemorative coins in 1892 and 1893 that would be sold at the fair. The first one of which is the World's Columbian Exhibition Half Dollar. It's a, it's a nice-looking coin, I think. And it was designed by Charles Barber and George T. Morgan. So two of the most famous designers and engravers in American history, Charles Barber being famous, of course, for the Barber subsidiary coinage that was issued between 1892 and 1916. And George T. Morgan, who is, of course, famous for the Morgan dollar that circulated and was minted between 1878 and 1904, and then one more time in 1921. So two of the most famous coin designers in America worked on this coin together, with Barber designing the obverse, which depicts a bust of Columbus, and Morgan designing the reverse, which depicts a 15th century sailing ship, generally as stand-in for the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. It's a beautiful 15th century sailing ship, you know, at full sail on the ocean, and with two small circles out at the bottom that have a globe demonstrated on them to show that Columbus, like, he discovered the New World, he, he filled in the map for, at least for Europeans, he filled in the map, and... And they felt that it was worth honoring him with his half dollar that was minted at the Philadelphia Mint in 1892 and 1893. And they were sold and distributed, and a lot of them actually entered circulation, and a lot of them were minted, making them very common today. Oh, yeah, and some, like you say, some entered circulation. That was my first classic commemorative coin buy. I was was at a show in Wapakoneta, Ohio, which is just north of here, about 30 minutes, 20 minutes. The home of the Neil Armstrong Museum, most famous, you know, one of the great Ohioans. There was a show there about 12 years ago, 10 years ago. I got an example of that for $5. It was barely melt at the time. Dang, that'd be a steal today. Yeah. Anyway. So so what else was there in Chicago from 1893? In 1893, so, the World's Columbian Exhibition Half Dollar was minted in 1892 and 1893. The 1892 is slightly more rare, but they're essentially the same price. Now, the other coin, and this is interesting, the first U.S. coin to feature a real-life woman was also issued for the Chicago World's Fair, and that is the Isabella Quarter. So, a lot of people are probably familiar with the story from elementary school. Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand. In 1492, Ferdinand. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Exactly. Columbus, an Italian seaman, navigator, explorer, all kinds of other things, was contracted by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain to conduct a mission sailing west from Europe, 
Spain, Portugal, that area, the Iberian Peninsula, to sail west from the Iberian Peninsula in an effort to find a passage to India. Because India was a huge center for spice trade, tea trade, opium, all kinds. Of, you can get all kinds of things there. And they wanted to find another route to get there that didn't involve um, going around the Cape of Good Hope, which was a long, arduous, and very dangerous journey. So they wanted to find another way, and they, we all know the story. Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, and he happened upon North America, which he thought was India, and basically the modern period of history continued from there. Now, Queen Isabella became, in 1893, the first woman to appear in a U.S. coin because the Board of Lady Managers of the Chicago World's Fair wanted to create a commemorative coin to raise funds for their endeavors and their projects, and they just they wanted a commemorative coin acknowledging a woman, and they wanted to honor Isabella. So they had a quarter produced in 1893 at the Philadelphia Mint that features a bust of Queen Isabella on the obverse, and, and on, on the reverse, a woman kneeling with a distaff and, and a spindle the idea being that they wanted that to be symbolic of the, the industry and the hardworking nature of the American woman. This was sort of the 1890s version of feminism. They wanted to demonstrate that women were apparently really good at household tasks, according to them. And they wanted to also honor Queen Isabella, who did play a significant role in Columbus's ex expedition, which was the whole thing that the exposition was trying to talk about in the first place. So you have two really famous commemorative coins. The 1892 and 1893 Columbus half dollar and the 1893 Isabella quarter. But you promised a threefer. I promised a threefer and a third is in the offing. In 1936, the city of Elgin, Illinois, which is about half an hour west of Rosemont, got its own commemorative coin. On June 16th of 1936, Congress passed a law that allowed Elgin, Illinois to have a commemorative half dollar made celebrating their uh, centennial as a city. So they elected to create this half dollar and then sell it, and all of the profits would be used to create a pioneer memorial statue, or collection of statues. Monument, yeah. Yeah, monument. In downtown Elgin, they wanted to create this, this beautiful municipal memorial to honor the pioneers moving west and in the greater Chicago area. So they contracted an artist by the name of Trigvi Rovelstad to come up with the design and... What does that design have? The obverse features a, it's not a real person. It's a representation of a pioneer wearing a, a coonskin cap and with a big, you know, bushy beard. You need that in the uh, Chicago winters. Yep. Or Elgin winters, as it were. And it also, oddly, on the obverse, right around the truncation, we talked about that term in an earlier term of the week segment, right on the truncation of the neck is the date 1673, which actually doesn't refer to anything relative to Elgin, Illinois, but it actually refers to the first time that Europeans, in this case specifically... Louis Joliet and Jacques Marquette. So Joliet, Illinois, named for Joliet, and Marquette, Michigan, named for Marquette. I did not know that. They were the first Europeans to set foot in what would become Illinois in 1673. And so they included the date 1673 and 1936 as references to the first people to set foot in Illinois, and then the year... Uh, 1936, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the founding of Elgin, Illinois. Now, what's really interesting is this half dollar, you know, like most commemorative half dollars that had a relatively small mintage, very, very few, if any, saw circulation, not all of them even sold. But yeah, I mean, you're in the heights of the Depression. 1936 exactly. was a high watermark for commemorative coinage production anyway. Exactly. So even though not all of them sold, a fair amount of revenue was still generated by the program. What's really interesting is... The monument for which these funds were being raised actually wouldn't be completed for decades after the coin was issued and the revenue was generated. And after the artist died, I yeah. should add. The artist who designed the coin, and then I believe he designed the memorial too, didn't he? I believe so. So yeah. he died in 1990, and the city still hadn't gotten around to making the memorial that he'd been contracted to design and designed a coin for to raise money or the memorial that he designed. He died in 1990. The memorial wasn't completed until 2001. So you had decades of just no memorial. And the artist actually died well before the memorial was ever completed. So Elgin, Illinois, it sits about half an hour west of Rosemont, which is itself just a little bit outside of downtown Chicago. Well, you're talking about an hour west of Chicago. Then, yes, basically. an hour west of downtown Chicago. Although, depending on traffic, it could be two hours. Or <laughs> yeah, the streets of Chicago and the traffic and everything can make travel a little bit of a challenge. 
about an hour as the crow flies. As the crow flies, about an hour as the world west turns. of uh, west of downtown Chicago. So we share all of this to say that the greater Chicago area has a really, really rich numismatic history, specifically in the context of American commemorative coins. And since the ANA is going to be in Rosemont, we thought it was only appropriate that we would clue you in to some of the major Chicago area commemoratives that have been produced by the U.S. Mint. Awesome. So that has been one exploration of history, in a sense. I am going to share another. We always like to look back at what is happening numismatically in history this week as the podcast goes live. And the most fascinating thing I find from this week in history happened on August 12th, 1909. So 1909, that's key. What happened in 1909? Well, the San Francisco Mint superintendent, Edward Sweeney, sent the Mint director, Robert E. Preston, a hundred examples of the 1909 SVDB Lincoln cent. So 1909 SVDB. VDB Lincoln sent. That is, as many collectors know, the coin to have for that series. And what does VDB stand for? Well, that's the designer of the Lincoln sent, Victor David Brenner, a Lithuanian immigrant who came to the U.S. and was employed in designing the, the coin. The initials were put on there, later taken off, I believe in the 19-teens, 1915 or somewhere around then. But 1909 SVDB, that is the one that, my gosh, I, I think I would have a heart attack if I found one in circulation today, uh, more than 100 years later. But 100 examples of those were sent to Mint Director for review this week, 110 years ago. 110 years ago. All right, now, we've been talking about commemoratives, we've been talking about this week in history. Now, I think we have a trivia answer for the audience. Absolutely. So the question was, who appears on the obverse of the Cleveland Great Lakes Exposition commemorative half dollar? The key was in the name Cleveland because... Because the person who appears on the obverse is Moses Cleveland, the city's namesake. Although... The current spelling of Cleveland, the spelling that we all know, is actually not how he spelled his name. Because his name has an A after the first E. Oh, so it's like cleave. It's, it's like, like, like cleave. cleaving. Yeah, cleaver. Yeah, cleave, uh, Beaver cleaver or uh, meat cleaver. Or, right. But yeah. anyway, so yes. So that they, is they the answer. The they took the A out. Interesting. Yes. So Moses Cleveland. Moses Cleveland appropriately appears on the obverse of the Cleveland commemorative half dollar. Absolutely. This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by the Coin World Marketplace. Are you selling your coins on the Coin World Marketplace? Put your inventory in front of buyers from around the globe. Visit coinworld.market today and become a seller. And now, back to the show. Now, we really hope that you enjoy our interview with Ray Bowes, an expert on the military exonumia of the Vietnam War, specifically Officers Club Gaming Tokens. It was a fascinating interview, and we really hope that you enjoy it. We are joined today by Ray Bose. He's a researcher and an expert on the exonumia and gaming tokens of military facilities in Vietnam during the Vietnam War, in addition to his work with the exonumic items. He also has done quite a lot of research on the namesakes of different military facilities, Thank you so much for joining us today, Ray. Well, thank you, Chris. And you are also a veteran. Yes, I uh, I went in the Army in January of 1963 as a as a 17-year-old, and I, I did 20 years in six days. I retired in 1983. I was the first sergeant in NATO, in Brussels, Belgium, NATO, and actually NATO support activity. And uh, I spent 16 of my, my uh, 20 years overseas. Well, thank you very much for your service. Thank you. So your work, the work that has gotten you into the research you do now, revolves around the tokens used in recreation clubs on army bases and other facilities in Vietnam. Explain to our uninitiated listeners what these tokens are, who produced them, and who used them. When I was stationed in Korea in 1963, I thought all these tokens were the same. I was a young man you know, playing slot machines at a place called Camp Mercer in South Korea. And one day a, a token popped out of the machine 
that uh, was different from the one that I, the ones that I were used to. And I realized then and there that there were a variety of tokens that, that the military had issued. After a stint in, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, I realized that military installation by the name of Fort D.A. Russell, which is now Francis E. Warren Air Force Base, issued post-exchange tokens back around 1892, and I became, at that point, fascinated with military money. Before I got to Vietnam, I visited Ed Brochette down at the A&A headquarters in Colorado Springs and told him I was interested in military monies. And he put me in touch with a gentleman who's passed away now. His name was James J. Curdo, who was uh, the founder of the Token and Metal Society back in, in the early 60s, late 50s. And uh, subsequently, uh, uh, Jim Curdo stirred my interest in the whole realm of military uh, military tokens. He had written a, uh, a little monograph back in the in the, in the early 1950s about his knowledge of military tokens, having had a son who was in the military and brought some back home to his dad. And subsequently, he, he became uh, just as enthusiastic and interested about these things that I did. At the time, he had no knowledge that there were military tokens that were used in Vietnam. And subsequently, when I found out that they were being used over there, I actually volunteered to serve in Vietnam in addition to the fact that I thought it was a worthy cause at the time, but I wanted to catalog all this military money on the ground as it was being issued. That's really putting some skin in the game. You know, when, you, when you're uh, 22 years old and enthusiastic about numismatics as well as my military career, it just seemed at the time like the thing to do. The reason these tokens are were issued is because the entire country of Vietnam was placed off limits to soldiers unless they were on duty. Uh, in other places, in West Germany and South Korea and so on and so forth, the soldiers could go off post at night, go to a local uh, bar, have a couple of beers, flirt with the girls and so on and so forth. But in Vietnam, none of that transpired. They were restricted to their compounds. The only recreation they had over there was having a few beers after duty hours and playing the slot machines. So then these tokens were only used in slot machines, or could they have been used in other kinds of gaming machines, and did they serve well, any other purpose? Well, the slot machines were ubiquitous in the NCO clubs over there. In the military snack bars, and they were run by the Army Exchange Service, they did also have uh, pinball machines and jukeboxes. So there were also the same form of tokens, 21, 18, and 23 millimeter, representing nickels, dimes, and quarters, that were used in the exchange facilities, but they were a very uh, limited issue as opposed to the ones that were that proliferated in the NCO clubs. Now, when you say NCO, for those listeners who aren't familiar with the military lingo, is that non-commissioned officers? Right, that's okay. correct. And there were several different kinds of clubs over there. There were enlisted men's clubs in some of the small bases, which incorporated both the lower-ranking soldiers and the NCOs. And then there would be a small officers' club, or in the larger installations, there would be an enlisted men's club, an NCO or sergeant's club, and an officers' club. Who was responsible for producing these tokens? They weren't a product of the United States Mint. And as I understand it, you and I have talked about this a little bit, Sega, a, a company that produced electronic games and associated tokens that a lot of people know today for video games, Sega produced a lot of these tokens. So who produced these tokens? How were they ordered? How did they come about? What was the production process and what did that look like? Well, basically the chief of uh, personnel and admin, a guy by the name of General Earl Cole, was the one who actually authorized these tokens to be used within the clubs. And the reason they were used is once in July of 1965, once military payment certificates were used, which were military money that were used in denominations of five cents 
through $10 bills. At that time, they were all paper. So, of course, they couldn't activate a slot machine. So, subsequently, when these slot machines were authorized to be placed in these various clubs as a form of recreation, tokens were needed. And the GIs knew these tokens as slugs. You know, today, collectors call them uh, military tokens and slot machine tokens. But back in the day, we knew them strictly as slugs, and nobody gave a second look to the legends that were on them, even though every club in Vietnam was required to use a different token, be it a token with the location marked on it, the unit marked on it, or the club name, or a picture of the unit mascot, or a, a military insignia. Something had to be marked on these tokens which designated one club's tokens from another. So why were these used instead of U.S. coins? Because you know you mentioned that the soldiers were restricted to the compound, so it's not as if U.S. coinage would slip out into the local economy. Was it? What were the practical reasons for doing this, and where would the exchange take place? First of all, you know, even though soldiers were restricted to to their bases during their off-duty hours, that doesn't mean that during duty hours they didn't go down to the river to wash their vehicles or ended up on a, a convoy that was uh, stopped at an intersection where they came in contact with a certain amount of Vietnamese. And, of course, in the same respect, in the larger cities, uh, Da Nang and Saigon mostly, the soldiers did have a certain amount of run of those cities. They could get out and about a little bit. If we had used U.S. dollars in Vietnam, the fear was that those U.S. dollars would end up, of course, in the black market and then subsequently would end up in North Vietnam and the communists would be able to use our U.S. dollars to buy equipment that would be used against us. With all of these tokens were, were ordered by each local base, like you said, each local base had to have, and each club had to have its own individual tokens in order to have them issued. When you first got to, to Vietnam and when you first became interested in cataloging all of these tokens, how did you go about acquiring them? And how did you go about sort of putting together uh, an, a f quite exhaustive catalog of all of these different kinds of tokens and, and mules between different uh, dies and things like that. Well, I have to preface this by telling you this. Early in 1968, before I went to Vietnam, I found out that tokens were being used for credit at Scott Air Force Base, Illinois. And I drove up from where I was stationed at Fort Leonard, Missouri, up to Scott Air Force Base for the specific reason of getting these getting some of the tokens that were used in the Scott Air Force Base NCO Club. And when I went in and approached the manager of this club, he flew off the handle, became totally irate, told me to get out of his club, and the air police literally escorted me off Scott Air Force Base. I don't know what the reason for such a uh, firm convictions on the part of that NCO club custodian was. But the only thing I can think of is that nobody would ever believe that somebody was actually collecting these things because they were strictly utilitarian. And I figured that the NCO club custodian of Scott Air Force Base must have thought that I was looking to obtain some of these tokens so that they could be counterfeited and then used in in the club that was that's my only reason for his you know off the wall attitude so when i got to vietnam i made it a point of letting people know through some through publicity through the army reporter and the, the logistic and some of the magazines over there uh, that i was a, a sincere collector of military monies and that I had owned, I owned military money that went back to the subtle tokens of the Civil War and the siege coinage of the Napoleonic Wars and that I was a serious collector. So when I went into these clubs, I could show them some of these articles and they said, oh, okay, that's, you know, that, that's fine. That's great. In fact, there, there, were, there was an article, as I mentioned the other day, that Bob Berman wrote for Coin World back in 
March of 1968, and I used Bob's article about the slot machine tokens in Vietnam as my credentials, so to speak, so that when I walked in and approached these people about these tokens, they understood what my motives were. So CoinWorld played a small part in the history of this collection and in the history of your research. So that's uh, that's well, pretty interesting. CoinWorld played a pretty big part because it was not until I had read an article back up probably the year before, and I mentioned to you the other day, I don't remember, I don't have it at the top of my thumb right now, but uh, it was CoinWorld that uh, originally reported on these tokens being used in Vietnam and I think they actually reported on that back in, in 65 or 66. Wow. So we're, we're a part of the story, at least a, at least a relatively small Coin, one. Coin World is definitely part of the story. <laughs> From your token collecting and your trying to assemble a collection of as many of these tokens as you could find, you began to use these tokens for a very different kind of historical research. And it's a branch of research that has seems to have really occupied you and, and presented, you know, quite a quite a daunting challenge and, and quite a lot of work over the years. You've been using these tokens to identify fire bases and, and small camps and, and sort of facilities that the, the Army's record department or the Armed Forces record department, for whatever reason, didn't really deem worthy of recognition. You were finding the names and the biographies of the soldiers who uh, these camps were named after. Could you tell us a little bit about how you put that together and what that research has looked like? Initially, I went to the casualty and memorialization branch at the Department of the Army after my retirement in about 1988, and I had already written a small monograph on the tokens of Vietnam back in 1983. But in 1988, I went to the casualty and memorialization branch, and I said, hey, listen, I'm interested in, in this camp called... Frenzel Jones, Camp Frenzel Jones, home of the 199th Light Infantry Brigade. And my thinking was, who the heck would name their kid Frenzel? You know, and that kid must have gotten beat up in grammar school every day of his life with a name like Frenzel. But what I didn't understand was that the camp was actually named for two young men. It was named after Herbert Frenzel from Sacramento, California, and Billy C. Jones from Ogmogley, Oklahoma. And they were the first two fellows killed in action from the 199th Light Infantry Brigade that went to Vietnam back in the, era, in the period 1966. Well, the casualty memorialization branch said, we don't have all that information. Uh, we got rid of it after the war. Well, through a, another turn of events, I learned that there was another location named the Freeman Anderson Compound in in Sauk Train that was also named after two soldiers killed in action, and in contacting their families, which I was initially reluctant to do but urged to do so by one of my relatives, I learned that the camp, that the family had been never been notified of this, this camp that had been named in honor of their loved ones in Vietnam. So subsequently, I took on this project to identify all the camps, compounds, airfields, fire bases, landing zones, and, and other facilities, including NCO clubs that issued the tokens that were named in honor of young men that were killed in action or in the line of duty. And probably about more than half of these families had never been told that a camp had been named in honor of a loved one. And I've actually, over the last 30 years, have notified these people of these honors bestowed on their uh, on their family members that were killed during the Vietnam War. So how many different locations have you found that issued these tokens? And how many of those places have you been able to identify the soldier or soldiers named for these places? As far as the, the physical tokens go... There are less than a, a half a dozen that actually had the names of soldiers on them. Okay. Monroe Van Alstein had a token that was marked with his name that said Van Alstein Open Mess, which was in Queen Anne. It was a special forces location. And Merle Thomas, who was a member of an A detachment in Bencat, had a club named at Camp Goodman in Saigon in his honor. And uh, Chief Holloway uh, had tokens marked with his name that were uh, used at Camp Holloway 
which was one of the bigger bases in the Central Highlands. And then Club Montgomery was named after Willie Montgomery, who was another Green Beret who was killed over there early on in the war. The names of soldiers marked on the tokens are relatively sparse. But once you start doing the study of them, for instance, you'll realize that tokens that have nothing more than 199TH on them were issued by Camp Frenzel Jones. Tokens that say FLC, Force Logistic Command, which was in Da Nang, were used in the club uh, on the base that was named by, uh, was named for uh, J.K. Books, who was a Marine that was killed over there, and so on and so forth. So all the pieces of the puzzle um, fit together in, the, in this subject. Do you think that that is the most important thing that the coin collector and token collector communities can learn from these tokens? Or are there all kinds of other stories and other pieces of information that can be gleaned from these things? The tokens of the Vietnam War are pretty much like a Rubik's Cube. You can learn about the, the mascots of some of the units like Tuffy the Tiger, who was the who was actually a tiger cub that was the mascot of the uh, 93rd uh, Transportation Company in Sok Trang when we were still flying uh, CH-21 helicopters over there. And there are other mascots. There was Fang the Wonder Dog in the Trang, whose name is on a token. And there's a picture of Gerard the Goose, who was the uh, who was the mascot and, and guard goose of the... Uh, of the Dosima compound up in Way, and uh, just <laughs> there's all kinds. There's just a myriad of different subjects. You know, the the club corruption uh, of the Vietnam War. Uh, we have a small band of uh, real criminal gangsters that impeded the the NCO club system, and uh, they started it at the 24th Infantry Division in Augsburg, Germany, back in the early 60s. And they all made their way to Vietnam, and they controlled most of these clubs, and they were siphoning money off from the slot machines and so on and so forth. So there's just a whole myriad of different aspects uh, when it comes to the slot machine tokens of the Vietnam War. So this this corruption you allude to of, of unscrupulous enlisted men or officers who were sort of engaged in this um, sort of skimming off the top, so to speak, uh, from these NCO clubs... Explain a little bit about how those NCO clubs worked and about how that graft and corruption took place. There was a sergeant major who had control of military personnel assignments around the world. And he put in club custodians into the different clubs that would rip off the slot machine tokens on literally a, a weekly basis. And I'm not talking about a couple of hundred bucks. I'm talking about... You know, the operation in Vietnam, they probably skimmed anywhere from 100000 to $200,000 a month out of slot machines in Vietnam. And in the 1960s, that was not a small amount of money. Not that it's, no, it's it a small amount of money today. but These people were, uh, by the Senate subcommittee that investigated all this, these people were known as the Khaki Mafia. Oh Khaki Mafia, they, they got themselves a name. These um, NCO clubs were funded by the soldiers themselves, right? Like, it wasn't, the army didn't supply all of it. The soldiers, you know, went in and patronized the business, and the businesses existed on a paying basis. The U.S. government would allocate, you know, a little startup money so the clubs could be built. But most of the, the clubs were built out of, you know, old ammo boxes and, and, and scrounge lumber and, if an artillery piece came into into country all boxed up, they'd salvage the lumber and they'd build their build their clubs. Some of the clubs were in bunkers. Some of them were rather elaborate places with with corrugated metal roofs and so on and so forth. But once these clubs got going, they were self sufficient. They had to generate their own funds. If a soldier went into a club some evening and he bought $5 worth of beer for he and his buddies and played another $5 in the slot machines, any of the profit that the club got 
from that $10 bill that that soldier spent went back into the club, either in reduced food prices, reduced meal prices, floor show from the Philippines or whatever. But this was a self-generating operation, but the soldier was supposed to get the money back. But instead of getting the money back, there was a select group of really ruthless NCOs, and there were, you know, 30 or 40 of them that just took all this money and put it in their in their pockets. They exchanged the slot machine tokens for MPC, exchanged the MPC for dollars in a reverse process, got their money to Hong Kong, and then got it into a Swiss bank account and uh, thought that they were going to get away with this until the Senate subcommittee came crashing down on their heads. When was that? The investigation began uh, in about 1969, and it went through about 1973. So it lasted four years. There are literally nine volumes of of the Senate report. Did that spell the end to the use of these slugs then? Pretty much so. Um, Secretary of the Army Froelke, back in around 1970, said there will be no more slot machines in military clubs, period. And uh, he gave them, you know, a few months to get these things out of the clubs. But from what I understand today, there are slot machines, you know, Americans have a tendency to repeat their, their old mistakes. And there, today there are, from what I understand, overseas there are slot machines in some of the military facilities again. Is there any evidence of a more modern incarnation of the same corruption that plagued these clubs back during Vietnam? Well, I think the reason the military put them back into the, into the system is because they, they ironed out all the kinks in the system and they thought that they... After the Vietnam scenario, they felt that they could put safeguards on slot machines so this would not happen again. I've been out of the military since 1983, so I, you know, I don't have a dog in the fight. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you really what is going on overseas at active duty military installations at this point in time. It, it would be curious to know, and, and you alluded to not knowing, but it'd be curious to know if in the last 30 years these modern slot machines have used slot tokens as well. Certainly the regular casino industry has switched to the ticket-in, ticket-out system, but that's really a, a development of the last decade or so. The point is that the military saw the last of its MPC quite a few years ago. Yeah, 73, I think. If the military is using, has in fact, uh, some of the military installations have slot machines in their clubs, they're they're back to using nickels, dimes, and quarters. Ah. With all the research that you have done into these tokens and with a pretty sophisticated knowledge as to, you know, the sheer number of different types... How many different types and, and die combinations and, and facilities, how many, of these, how many distinct types of these tokens exist? There are approximately 2,000 different tokens, give or take. I never sat down and actually counted my, my cataloging effort as far as you know, which ones were or how many have actually been issued. But there's about 2,000 different types. Now, those 2,000 different types are broken down into, for instance, the um, 8th Field Hospital had a, a nickel slot machine token, a 10-cent slot machine token, and a 25-cent slot machine token. Now, when by attrition those things kind of ran out, one of two things happened. Either the exact same dies were used again to restrike more tokens to replace those that disappeared because GIs at the end of the evening took a few home in their pockets. And after that happened hundreds and hundreds of times, those slot machine tokens depleted. So they had to be, uh, another issue had to be restruck. And sometimes the restrike was exactly the same as the previous issue. In other instances, for whatever reason, there was a new issue for that club and a slightly different 
dye variety or slightly different wording or a totally different image that was struck on the next token in line. So when I say 2,000 tokens, I'm talking 2,000 different pieces that a collector would have the potential to acquire. And how can a collector acquire these? How readily available are they? And uh, how can collectors learn more about the different iterations that are out there? I know Chris has talked to you about your research. I'd love to know more about how to access that just for my own interest. Every once in a while, uh, you can you can find some of the more common pieces on, on the internet, on eBay or whatever. There are uh, a couple of individuals that, that do a lot of trading back and forth. You know, they're trying to boost up their own collections. If anybody has any specific questions on, on Vietnam tokens in general, uh, they can always uh, uh, contact me through uh, my uh, email address, which is namlore at hotmail.com. That's N-A-M-L-O-R-E, like folklore, but sure. namlore, at hotmail.com. What kind of collector communities have sprung up around these tokens or what collector communities are interested in collecting these tokens? It seems to me that they would have a really broad range of, of appeal and that a broad range of collectors might be interested in them. They're sort of a dedicated slug collector base. Collector Society per se. There is a an organization that collects military currency. It's an organization that's run by a guy by the name of Fred Swan, who is a former U.S. Army captain. Fred's interest is more into the military currency and, and prisoner of war chits of World War II and that type of thing. But there are people that belong to what they call MPC Fest that they have up in Ohio every year. A lot of them have a secondary interest to military currency, which are these slot machine tokens, not only slot machine tokens of Vietnam uh, that we used in South Vietnam, but you know that there have been tokens that were used in Germany, in France, in far off places like Iceland and uh, Ethiopia and a lot of other places wherever we have we had military assistance advisory groups. There were between 1950 and 1960, there were 44 military advisory groups around the world. And many of those locations used military payment certificates, which was an innovation that began in 1946. Well, anywhere that there is slot machines and military clubs and military payment certificates, there were slot machines, specific slot machine tokens issued for that club. Vietnam being the most prolific of all those uh, issues. It's funny that you mention uh, Fred Schwan. We actually interviewed him on an earlier episode of this podcast. So our uh, our listeners have a at least a a broad sense as to uh, the culture around uh, military payment certificates and other military currencies. But something I'm curious about is the rarity of these things. And you mentioned that there are some pieces, whether they're rare mules or whether they're pieces that just the whole production run were destroyed, but there are some pieces that are incredibly rare, even unique. And you shared an example with me in a previous conversation we had about an example from Vung Tao. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that story and talk a little bit about some of the really rare examples and what makes them rare. When I was in Vietnam, I was absolutely obsessed with slot machine tokens and chits and, and anything that was used by the military as currency. If I saw a soldier that had a patch on his shoulder that was not readily familiar to me, you know, one of the aviation units from one of the outlying areas of one of the infantry uh, infantry brigades and so on and so forth, I'd walk up to him and I'd say, you know, hey, my name's Ray Bose and uh, I'm interested in, uh, in the military installation that you're at, what your club name is, and uh, what kind of tokens you're using in your slot machines if you have slot machine tokens. And these guys have looked at, looked at me like, you know, what planet are you from? At first had no conception of what the heck I was talking about because the slot machine tokens were used specifically within those clubs. 
and nobody really looked at them. They just got a roll from the counter, plugged them into the machine, and drank their beer and went home. Whereas the military payment certificates, which has pictures of pretty ladies with diamond tiaras and, and, and big smiles and so on and so forth, and that's the imagery that are on the, the military payment certificates. So GIs look at these military payment certificates, but they don't give um, any even a second look at the, or they didn't at the tokens. Well, when I would ask someone about, do you have any tokens at your club? Some of these guys were friendly about the whole thing. Other guys, like I say, thought I was completely out of my mind. But in one instance, somebody, uh, I talked to a fella, and he was with the 805th Transportation Company in, uh, in Vungtau. Well, it wasn't a place that I was read I could readily get to. I was running convoys first for the 4th Transit Division and then for the 25th Division and running convoys up by the Cambodian border and so on and so forth. So, you know, my time certainly wasn't my own. But at night, I'd sit down and I'd figure out what APO number this 805th Transportation Company was, and I wrote a letter to the to the club sergeant, and I said, hey, I'm interested in a set of your tokens. This young fellow who was one of the clerks in the clubs wrote back, and he said, the chaplain uh, came in, saw that we had slot machine tokens in, in the slot machines. A couple of weeks ago, we had to take them out in Vungtau Bay and dump them all in the harbor. All the tokens and all the slot machines are, are gone. Well, I figured I would never find a token of the 805th Transportation Company, and since I've been down here in Florida, I was at a, a coin club meeting one night, and one guy came up to me and said, hey, I know you're collecting Vietnam slot machine tokens. You can have these. And uh, I put them in my pocket, took them home, and uh, when I pulled them out and started looking through them, lo and behold, there was a token of the 805th Transportation Company, which is the only one that I know of. Huh, awesome. What a great story. Well, it just goes to show you that local coin clubs and collectors communicating can often lead us to find some really wonderful things. So that's a... Uh... Yeah. Now, the other rare token, which we, we just talked about the other day, uh, is about this token discovery from Kevin Malloy. And he found an actual muling of two tokens, which were... Um, the reverse of a 101st Airborne token that was used up in uh, up in Camp Eagle, up around Chulai, and a field hospital token, which was the first medical, the real medical facility out in the field that was way down in, uh, when I say way down, further south from Chulai, down in the train. And uh, you know, I've been I've been collecting these tokens for 50 years. And I had never heard of a muling of a, a token thus. And uh, Kevin uh, entrusted me with this token and, and sent it to me, and I had it for about a week. And I waited and measured it and inspected it under a stereo microscope and everything else. And, and then I went through my records that I have not complete records, but I have many of the records from Sega that I received years ago from a a gentleman who was with the Maryland Paper Money Society. Through these numbers and drawings of tokens, I have analyzed and analogued all this stuff and figured out which tokens were used when by their purchase order numbers and subsequently determined that the 101st had tokens struck at the Sega facility just prior to the 8th Field Hospital having tokens struck, and again just after. So the feasibility of this being a mule is, uh, is great, and I believe it to be an authentic piece. I don't think there were very many of them ever struck like that, but this one, this one made it out and, and into... Uh, into, into circulation, and it was something I believe that uh, Kevin picked up on eBay. Wow. Well, that, that'll that be a fabulous find and add one more incredibly rare entry into this uh, this catalog of many, many different varieties that we're, that we're talking about. So, Ray, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I know that our listeners and readers and people who follow CoinWorld are going to be really interested in this, and 
I know that especially given the fact that Coin World has been a part of the story since the 1960s, you know, it's, it's really cool to have this kind of continuity and kind of be able to follow out the story over all these years. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. One last thing I'd like to mention is uh, my website. It's bowsmilitarybooks.com. And people can contact me through that address as well. And anything that I can do to help people as far as not only information about slot machine tokens and, and, and the military currency of Vietnam, but I have access to other information on uh, locations and, and fellows that were killed in action over there and, and so on and so forth. And we try to maintain records on all these things and answer questions that possibly other, other organizations aren't able to. That is wonderful. It sounds like a great manifestation of what really truly has been a life's work. Thank you for your service to the country, more so, uh, but also then um, to the hobby as a much lesser <laughs> level. And uh, thank you again for sharing this fascinating information with us today. Just one last thing I would like to say, and that is, were it not for Coin World back in the in the mid-60s and their willingness to to lay the foundation for for all that has come since. I'm pretty sure that uh, all of this would never have happened and much of this information would have been uh, would have been lost for all time. So my hat's off to Coin World. Well, thank you very much. We're, we're certainly proud of that and, and we appreciate all the work that you've done and for talking to us today. Thank you so much, Ray. Okay. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right. Cheers. We hope that you really enjoyed our interview with Ray Bowes. I know we learned a lot about the slugs that officers would use in gaming machines, and we found the biographies that he has put together of all of these fallen soldiers to be tremendously interesting. And we hope you learn something a little bit about commemorative coins, a, a popular subject, at least with Chris and I, and hopefully uh, more folks. Until next time, we are going to have a great time at the ANA this week. Hopefully, you come by and see us. If not, you can't be there. In any event, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from Coin World. With over 40,000 coins available, visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.